it's a snowball. Like you have to just get to level one to get to level two. It's, it doesn't all come at once. It took about 15 months of fundraising, talking to 150 plus investors, mostly getting rejected, but just, you know, having trust and believing that the right people will come to the table at the right time, I think is crucial because it, it is tough to get rejected day in and day out. Have you ever wondered, how do you grow a socially conscious and environmentally friendly e-commerce brand online while also making a profit? Yeah, me too. After watching my family members suffer through cancer and heart disease using products by companies that care more about profits than their customers, there must be a better way, right? That's when I discovered an emerging wave of successful, purpose-driven businesses and I knew I needed to be a part of it. So join me as we dive into the stories behind the most inspiring brands in the world and discover the secrets on how they successfully win over the vote of their customers' wallets and grow their business online. My name is Vincent Tanyono and welcome to the e-commerce speak podcast. Welcome back. I'm super happy because I have Matt Feldman with me here today. So Matt is the co-founder and CEO of Moku Foods. And Matt is also named Forbes 30 Under 30 this year. So what Moku Foods is, is Moku, uh, they use clean plant-based ingredients without processed and artificial ingredients, and they turn them into products that have the taste and texture of meat. So one of the products they have is a mushroom-based jerky. And what I found interesting was that I saw Matt, uh, your quote, you on one of the articles, you said that we're not here to just to make jerky, but we're here to encourage everyone to take mindful steps towards a healthier, sustainable future. So I thought that's an amazing vision that you have uh, with what you're doing here with Moku. And not only that, Moku is also backed by the founders of Thrive Market, Casper, Soylent, and Medusino Farms, as well as major firms like CD Capital, Ventra Capital. So those are some really heavy hitters there. So I'm uh, super happy here, super excited for this show. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks so much, Vincent. Pleasure to be on. Yeah, awesome. So I'm really curious. Can you take me back a bit on your story? Like what made you start uh, Moku Foods? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in in Honolulu, Hawaii, and growing up on a small island, I think we're just more um, more conscious about our, our decisions and how they affect, you know, both the island and, and the planet in general. So, you know, from a, from an early age, I knew when I, when I would start a company, I wanted it to be um, centered around sustainability in some sense. So fast forward uh, to college, I, I went to school in New York City at Baruch College, which is a, a business uh, school. And then I moved to Silicon Valley to work in tech after that. And about four years into my tech company in, in 2018, um, I watched a couple documentaries on Netflix and, and switched to a, a plant-based diet primarily. And during that time, um, I was looking for a savory snack for myself, you know, other than nuts and popcorn and chips, something that was nutrient dense. And um, jerky, you know, would have been the perfect snack, but I couldn't eat it since I was, you know, vegan. And I noticed that there were no good, you know, plant-based or mushroom jerkies out there. So I started making it myself, you know, from mushrooms after doing some research on, on mushrooms and their sustainability and, you know, how efficient they grow and their meaty texture and, and their, uh, you know, their, the nutrients that they have. And then I also started doing research on the environmental impact of beef and the fact that it takes, I think there was a headline in the LA Times that said, 
you know, it takes 660 gallons of water to produce one, like one quarter pounder or something. And I was just like amazed by that. I was like, how is that even possible? Um, so I was like, you know, the beef jerky industry is doing super well. They're, they're approaching $5 billion in the U S and no one's heard of any plant-based or mushroom jerky. So maybe there's an opportunity. So, um, it was at that moment, you know, I was, I was still working, but, um, I started shifting my energy towards a mushroom jerky. And once I put my mind to something, I just go full steam. So the first thing I did was, um, hire a chef. And, and to do that, I just networked like crazy, mostly on LinkedIn and got as many coffee and phone meetings as I could. And eventually got a meeting with the, the head of product development at Just, a guy named Thomas Bowman. And I bought him lunch one day in Berkeley. And I was like, hey, I'm you know vetting some formulation companies to take my kitchen recipe and take it to the next level. And he's like, oh, I can just do this for you. I'm about to leave the company and I'll have about six months to work with another brand. So I was like, perfect. Um, so that was kind of the segue into, um, you know, really shifting into, you know, something that, you know, I, I saw as like a, a viable and, and um, thriving company even before it started. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Amazing timing, right? Everything just falls into place. So, right. yeah, if I'm not mistaken, you also started a couple of companies before Moku, right? So what were some of the takeaways from those experiences that kind of like help you in, in this journey? Yeah, I, so I did a, a couple small companies. So I started an organic uh, coffee company in New York City where we mixed a couple South American blends and uh, distributed them to cafes, restaurants, and those donut um, stands in, in Manhattan, New York. Um, and it was just me and another buddy. We bootstrapped it. And that was just, you know, all hard work. There, there was no real scalability there. Um, so my lesson from that one was that fundraising and, and capital can go a long way and, and moving your business very quickly. And then the other business I started was one called Undorm. Um, and that one was a real estate brokerage to help students in New York City find affordable apartments. And I had a team of three co-founders. And that one taught me that having multiple co-founders is the way to go for any new business. It just, it accelerates the, the growth. You know, it diversifies the energy, whether it's you know, whether something's good or bad, at least there's a couple people, you know, to where it falls on their shoulders and not just yourself. So I would say those are the two biggest lessons I learned. Um, but I still ended up starting Moku by myself because I couldn't find a co-founder that I liked until about a year and a half in. Um, but that's usually my lesson to new founders is like, try your best to find one or two other people because it just makes the world of a difference. Oh, yeah, that's, that's actually interesting. So how do you, can you give some tips on how do you actually find a co-founder, someone that is aligned with your vision and also like that actually fits with like maybe like your working style. How do you do that? Yeah, I would, the first thing I would do is like envision what type of co-founder you would like. So, you know, if you're skilled in finance and operations, then you might want to find a co-founder that's complementary in some way. So someone that's good in marketing um, or product development or something like that, because you don't want two of the same person. Um, or else it'll probably be conflicting and you want someone that can balance you out. Someone that, um, can own different areas of the business that you might not, you know, be, be skilled or adept in. So, um, I would first, you know, try to figure out what type of co-founder you would like and then network and just tell as many people as you can that you're looking for that, this type of person. And over time, if you talk to enough people, that person will, will surface. And I think it's important not to rush into a co-founder because I think it's easy to just bring someone on early that, 
um, you know, might be interested, but not might be, not might be the best fit. So taking your time and finding the right person and making sure that person is aligned with, um, you know, where the business is at, where it's going to go and, you know, what you want to do with the business, you know, whether it's a farmer's market type brand, or if it's a brand that you think you're going to be raising, you know, five tens of millions of dollars. Cause I think that, you know, makes it for a very different type of company, um, culture. Yeah, that's, that's excellent advice. So what do you enjoy most about what you do on your day-to-day? Because I know it's, it's like completely different from what it was before when you're in tech in Silicon Valley, right? Yeah, that was a, a real safe and easy job um, working in tech. But, you know, with Moku, it's kind of just a leap. Like you're kind of jumping off a cliff into the water because you don't know what's going to happen. And there's really good days and there's really bad days. So it can be kind of scary at times, but um you know, we, we raised money very early on and, you know, that helped us to set a foundation and hire some folks and not have all the work coming from me. But my day to day really consists of just overseeing a bunch of different parts of the business. So I'm not necessarily executing on one single part, but, you know, we have an agency that runs our, our digital marketing. So Facebook, Instagram, Google, um, those ads. So I'm, I'm working with them a lot on strategy and figuring out, you know, different campaigns and, and um, sales and, and emails to do. And then um, I have a, we have a full-time creative person who, you know, did all of our branding and website design and packaging design and, and produces all of our creatives for our digital marketing. So I'm working with her every day on, um, you know, figuring out what we need to produce to entice customers since we're a D2C only brand right now. Um, and then I also... Um, work with our backend team on the operations to figure out how we can, you know, make our production more efficient and, 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 you know, working on new flavor development with our co-manufacturer. So um, there's no, it's, there's no real like normal day for me. I'm kind of scattered and, and have my hands and everything. And a lot of it just comes from ad hoc emails or calls that come in where there's like a fire to put out, but it's fun. I love this type of role. Like I'm very high pace and, and, I just love going, you know, from zero to a hundred miles an hour on things instead of just sitting behind a desk and, and knowing exactly what I'm going to do every day. But it's, it's also a lot of boring work too, that CEOs go through, um, a lot of admin stuff, a lot of legal stuff. So it's not all, you know, events and, and podcasts like this, this is the fun part. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. I mean, because I think it also helps because you are, um, you are really driven with your mission, right? with what you're working here. This is the e-commerce speak podcast and we'll be right back. This episode is sponsored by DMAF. Many e-commerce brands are worried about the cost of advertising going through the roof and the rise of competition in their space. We have a simple framework for a campaign that generates immediate cash flow and revenue. If you're interested in looking at that framework and picking up revenue and sales over the next 30 days, we'd love to share that framework with you. You can go to dmav.net, that is D-I-M-A-V.net, go there to learn more. Thanks for listening and supporting the show. And now for the conclusion of this episode. I'm actually curious, like how come you chose to start with the direct-to-consumer route first instead of going like retail, for example? A couple different ones. So one, like when thinking about what would make a good direct-to-consumer brand, you have to have one, a light enough product. So one that can ship affordably. Um, something that's addicting that people will want to buy over and over again. 
and um, you know something that you know can hit the price point that makes D2C efficient. So, you know, I think we we hit all all three of those check boxes, and it's it's pretty new that people are buying snacks online. But honestly, during the pandemic, a lot of consumers' shopping behavior shifted to you know purchasing more food online. So that definitely helped us to be able to sustain a, a fully D2C business without having to go into retail. But I think the biggest thing is um, D2C is, or, or having a Shopify business is is less capital intensive than doing a full retail push. Because what people don't realize with retail is that there are so many expenses with merchandising fees and, and promos and slotting fees. And then also having to put down capital without getting paid for months by the distributor. Um, you, you really need to be you know capitalized in the right way before doing a a large retail push at least at least so for us um we figured okay if, let's see if we can do a d2c business first so we we launched on shopify and amazon um, we have a good repeat purchase rate is which is like the, the biggest thing we're looking for is you know is this sustainable is this a subscription business and it's been healthy so far um but another thing that is, is smart about doing d2c first before going into retail is being able to understand so many different data points about your product and your customers so you know figuring out who is buying your product? You know the demographic, the age, the the geographic, the geography, um, and being able to take that to a retail buyer, uh, you know, just provides a lot of leverage and being able to figure out where which retailers to to be in, and you know, in different parts of the country. And it also it also just you know helps with the buyers, um, you know, them wanting to carry you in their store if if you already know who's buying it and where they're buying yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I think that the data is definitely very very useful, and I also think like. When, when it comes to retail, like getting it on the shelf is one thing, getting it off the shelf is another thing, like getting it so. Oh, exactly. <laughs> it's not hard to get into retail. It's, it's harder to stay on shelf. So if you launch in retail um, and no one knows who, who your brand is because you're so new, then people are going to stick to the, the brands that they're more aware of. So launching on you know, direct to consumer and building out your social channels and your community that goes a long way in you know prepping for a launch because you want someone to already recognize your brand once they're in the store, if possible. Yeah, uh, earlier you mentioned that like you because of the pandemic, you see like more people buying online, especially uh, snacks and this kind of things. Do you also see like any trends when it comes to people more conscious with whether it's environmentally conscious or people maybe converting to a, like a vegan option? Do you see like an increase in that trend? Yeah, so it's hard to compare since we we launched only six months ago, so it was still in the pandemic. But um, in terms of like our the the feedback we get and the the reviews and also just like the type of customer that buys our product, um, like you know we're, we're a plant based or, or mushroom you know, vegan product, but the majority of our customers aren't vegan, and I think that is a telling sign that people who eat meat and are conscious about what they put in their body, whether it's for health or for sustainability reasons, they are looking for alternatives to meat. Um, and, you know, we're, we're providing that. And I would say like the one thing that we focused on when developing the product was not compromising on a couple of things. So one taste, we wanted to as best as possible replicate that taste and texture meat, um, but also the ingredient label. You know, there's a lot of meat alternatives out there. I don't even need to say the name without people knowing them that do taste a lot like meat, but they do compromise on the label and they have a lot of chemicals. Their process is, you know, it's very highly processed, high saturated fat oils, and it's just not healthy for us. Um, although it is serving a purpose because it's helping shift 
um, from meat to something that tastes just like meat. But we didn't want to go that route. We wanted to have clean ingredients um, while also maintaining that superior taste. So it was tough. I mean, it's, it's definitely easier to use, you know, unhealthy ingredients and, and be highly processed, but we chose to, you know, spend the time and effort and in creating a product that didn't go down that route. Yeah. Awesome. So I, yeah, I think that's why like you, you stand out from all the other, like you were saying that the other plant-based um, jerky that, that they're just not doing that well. Right. So um, I think transitioning to the next topic here is like about your ideal customers. I know you're mentioning that not all of them, they are vegan, some are meat eaters as well. So who are your ideal customers and what have you found uh, best when it comes to like attracting them to, to know about Moku? Yeah, I think they're, the ideal customer is what's called a flexitarian. So that's someone that, you know, eats meat, but like I said, is conscious about what they put in their body. Mm-hmm. So um, they naturally, you know, are looking for plant-based or vegan products, um, you know, to fill their, their day. Um, so these can be mothers that are looking for a healthy snack for their kids. It can be, you know, it, it the age is across the board for us. We have, you know, a lot of Gen Z is, is plant-based now. So we have, you know, a good amount of those folks buying our product. We have millennials who, um, you know, have done their research about meat, you know, whether it's for the environment or for their health and they want to switch to a healthier product or a more sustainable product. So it's really just people that are conscious about what they're eating and, and are looking for alternatives to meat. Mm. What's your vision? Uh, where do you see like more cool foods in, let's say in one to two years time? Yeah. So, you know, right now we're, we're only selling our jerky. Um, we have three flavors of that Hawaiian teriyaki, original sweet and spicy. Um, but we're also working on some new products. Uh, we have a, um, a beta product, which is a bacon bits that we're selling at some restaurants on, on salads and other dishes. But um, we're working with a development firm right now to figure out our innovation pipeline of products over the next two years. But we see, you know, a, a big green space in meaty snacks that are, you know, plant-based and, and use mushrooms and other functional ingredients. Um, because most of the savory snacks out there are not nutrient dense. They're kind of just chips or nuts or popcorn. Um, so we think there's a lot of opportunity in that space and a lot of low hanging fruit. So, um, you know, things like functional mushroom chips or bacon bits or, you know, the, the meat sticks, but instead of meat, you know, plant-based and mushroom based. So, um, I would say like shelf stable snacks that are nutrient dense is, is where we want to be. Mm. Yeah. And I remember earlier you mentioned that like having the proper funding is also uh, important to get to be able to get where you are today. So can you give like some tips on maybe for our, our other listeners here who are like trying to get investors? What are, tell us some of the good stuff here. Like how were you able to attract some of those investors? Yeah, for sure. I, I think, um, yeah, getting investment money is definitely an art. There's different ways to do it. If you're already successful, it makes it a lot easier. This was my first venture in food and, and I didn't know, I didn't have any network in the food industry. So I had to create it. So, you know, before I even, you know, started the development of the product, I, I networked like crazy. And just to, just to be on a, a text basis, you know, with a lot of successful founders and, and meeting investors, I think that was definitely important just to be on their radar that I'm creating something. And then, you know, the next most important part was having a product that tastes really good, even though it was a prototype. So when Thomas and I finished development, um, you know, I was connected to a lot of these awesome founders from Thrive and Casper. 
and they tried the product and, you know, I, I sold them on the vision and they put in this first, you know, angel checks, small checks, but I was able to take that and be able and go to larger investors and say, Hey, look, you know, this is the product, the, the back, the founders of Casper, Thrive Market, Soylent, June Shine, these guys are all behind it. Um, we just need some bigger checks now to take it to the next level. And that definitely helped. It, it's a snowball. Like you have to, you have to just get to level one to get to level two. It's, it doesn't all come at once. It took about 15 months of fundraising, talking to 150 plus investors, mostly getting rejected, but just, you know, having trust and believing that the right people will come to the table at the right time, I think is crucial because it, it is tough to get rejected day in and day out. But, you know, at the end of the day, like being a first time food founder, you know, not being in market. So we were pre-launch, like it is normal to be rejected by most investors. You just have to keep pushing. Mm, yeah. So you've spoken to a lot of these investors, advisors, what would you say was, is like the, the best advice that you have received? So I think to be an, an investable company, um, if you're not a second time food founder, um, you really have to have the back end infrastructure at least, you know, in place or at least a plan to, uh, you know, have it done. Because for me, I had a great prototype, but I had no idea how to scale the back end, And I didn't realize that that would be the most difficult part of the business. And investors you know, were asking questions about, you know, where are you going to be producing this? And in my mind, I was like, oh, well, you know, there's these three co-packers I'm talking to. One of them will work. But it took 50 different co-packers to like to, you know, getting rejected by those two and, and finally finding one that was open to working with a, a mushroom based product because a lot of these meat co-packers, you know, are highly uh, regulated by the USDA and, and they don't want to cross contaminate with a plant based product. So it was tough to find one that would work with me, but having the different, you know, having a team is huge. Um, so investors knowing that you're not the only one working on the company, um, having some earlier investors. So having those founders involved definitely helped. Um, having, but having the back end infrastructure to scale the business, I think was a, something I was missing early on. And I had to, you know, get that down before getting the venture money in. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I can see that, uh, Mokufus is going to do, uh, amazing things here. And Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So for our listeners who are interested to find out more about Moku Foods, or maybe they want also want to try some of the jerky, how do they do that? Yeah. So right now we're, we're selling on mokufoods.com. We sell six packs on there with a hundred percent happiness guarantee or an instant refund so that uh, customers don't feel at risk um, buying six bags of jerky. And we also sell them on Amazon uh, where we sell three packs for a smaller pack size. And then we'll be launching on Thrive Market in August. Wow. Excellent. So one final thing before we wrap this up, is there any final takeaways or anything you'd like to share that maybe I didn't ask? Yeah, I would say like one lesson I made was uh, starting a food business, especially one that doesn't really have a precedent in, in knowing how to make a mushroom jerky, um, is develop the product for scale from day one. Because when we started, we developed, like Thomas and I developed it, not knowing how to scale it, I would say. So we had to do, we had to go back into development um, when we made a lot of mistakes at the first co-packer. Um, but if we developed it for scale from day one, we would have saved a lot of time and money um, because I think a, a kitchen formulated product versus a commercially formulated product are two totally separate things. And I think 
founders that don't have the experience don't realize that in the beginning. So I think designing or developing a product for scale from day one um, and, and investing in, in the right resources to do that is, is crucial. Excellent advice. So it was excellent speaking with you, Matt, and it was a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Vincent. It was my pleasure. Did you enjoy today's conversation? If you did, help us grow by going to iTunes, hit follow, and leave a five-star review with your biggest takeaway.